program, which is the only program we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, is the, the 12 steps. Going to AA meetings and not drinking is no different at all than going to the bar and not drinking. I can't go to a bar and get that buzz I see these other people have unless I do what they're doing, which is drinking alcohol. I can't go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and be happy, joyous, and free like other people I see unless I do what they're doing. People that seem to have a successful, happy life had one thing in common. They had worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. Well, hello, friends of Bill W. and other friends. You have landed on Sober Speak. My name is John M. I am an alcoholic, and we are glad you are all here, especially newcomers. Newcomers, that is, both to recovery as a whole and newcomers to this podcast. Sober Speak is a podcast about recovery centered around the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. My job here on Sober Speak is simple. My job is to provide a platform to the amazing stories of recovery all around us. Consider Sober Speak, if you will, your meeting between meetings. Please remember, we do not speak for AA or any 12-step community. We represent only ourselves. We are here to share our experience, strength, and hope with those who wish to come along for the ride Take what you want and leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, howdy, folks. That was the voice of Mr. Ricky R. that you heard at the beginning of this episode. Ricky is from Jacksonville, Texas. He has been sober since 1990. Uh, some of you, in fact, uh, I'm sure listened to Gary Kay's episode entitled There is a Solution from a couple of months ago or so. And Gary Kay is Ricky's sponsor. And uh, Ricky just has loads of AA wisdom to offer up. And I just know you're going to enjoy his story. In fact, Ricky had so much good content that we had to spend split it up into two episodes. So, all right. So before we get started here today with Ricky, um, I just sat down to uh, uh, put something on tape here to record this. I have a very uh, busy travel week and I'm trying to get ahead of the game. And I thought to myself, well, this is the fifth month of the year, May, and I want to go ahead and put something down at the beginning of this recording regarding the fifth step. So the fifth step is we admitted we were God, or excuse me, we admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being the exact nature of our wrongs. Uh, this step in particular holds up a lot of people. They think, wait a second. Okay, I'll come in here and I'll go to your meetings and do that kind of silly stuff. But you're asking me to write down uh, at, uh, s- some of my character defects and my flaws and, and, and a lot of things from my past and then sit in a room with somebody and talk to them about it, you have got to be kidding me. So I want to go ahead and just kind of give you a little experience, strength and hope from my perspective on the fifth step. Um, And I've got my trusty big book. 
Hear that? That's actually paper. That's actual paper. It's an actual book right here in front of me. And so the first thing I want to read regarding the fifth step is it says on page 72, the best reason first to do this. If we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. So let me go ahead and read that one more time. The best reason first, if we skip this vital step, we may not overcome drinking. So that was enough to get my attention. And my sponsor sat down with me. We talked about this fifth step, going into it, why it was important. I was prepared and I went through the fifth step. So um, I, I just want to throw that out there. And you know, there is a saying in Alcoholics Anonymous that says, we are only as sick as our secrets. And I can definitely tell you that was the case for me. Um, and then if you go over here to page 73, it says more than most people, the alcoholic leads a double life. He is very much the actor. He wants to enjoy a certain reputation, but knows in his heart, he doesn't deserve it. And it says uh, about uh, the past, it says, coming to his senses, he is revolted at certain episodes he vaguely remembers. These memories are a nightmare. He trembles to think someone might have observed him. As fast as he can, he pushes these memories far inside himself. He hopes they will never see the light of day. He is under constant fear and tension that makes for more drinking. Now, I don't know about you, but I put myself into a lot of sordid situations in my life, things that I was not proud of at all. And, um, and this was a very strange phenomenon in my life. I wasn't really thinking about this going into the fifth step. But what had started to happen to me, folks, is I had developed a, a kind of a nervous twitch that would go off. And these this nervous twitch would go off whenever I had these movies that would play in my head from situations that I had put myself into in the past. And these movies were starting to go off at inopportune times. And th that's when I would just be having a normal conversation with a relative, a business associate, a friend, whatever the case may be. I would start to have these movies play out off in my head. And I started to have this nervous twitch every single time the movies would play. And it was getting to be really bothersome and embarrassing at the same time. And I thought, why am I developing this? And I just couldn't seem to stop it. And what I noticed as an unintended consequence, uh, let's just say a, a couple months after that I had done that fist step, is that those movies had quit playing. Now, I wasn't doing the fist step and thinking, boy, I just need those movies to quit playing in my head. What I was doing is I was doing the right thing. I was stepping in the right direction. And as an un unintended consequence of doing the fifth step, all of a sudden those movies started to disappear. It was incredible in my life. Now, let me go on here to page uh, 
uh, page 75. And this is what I'm sure I am not the first person to think of this, uh, uh, but I call the, uh, the fifth step uh, promises. I probably heard this in a meeting somewhere, but if you look at page 75, it says we pocket our pride and go to it. The fifth step is talking about illuminating every twist of character, every dark cranny of the past. Once we have taken this step withholding nothing, we are delighted. That's a promise. We can look the world in the eye. That's a promise. We can be alone and at perfect peace and ease. That is a promise. Our fears fall from us. That's a promise. We begin to feel the nearness of our Creator. That's a promise. We have had many, we have had certain spiritual beliefs, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. Now that's a promise. That's the beginning of the spiritual experience. Let me go ahead and read that again. It says, we have had certain spiritual beliefs in the past, but now we begin to have a spiritual experience. So we had beliefs in the past, some of us. But now it's not beliefs, it's turning into an experience. The feeling that the drink problem has disappeared will often come strongly. That is a promise. And then finally, the last one, we will feel we are on the broad highway, walking hand in hand in the spirit of the universe. Now, I got to tell you, after I had done my fifth step with my sponsor, and we went over it. And by the way, I had written down everything. I had all my resentments. I had all my fears. And I had all the sex, sex slash relationship stuff all written down. And we got together and we did that fifth step. And I laid it all out there. There was nothing that I was holding back on. But I can tell you that after I had that, after I did that fifth step, I don't know if I necessarily felt I was walking uh, on the broad highway of the universe and hand in hand with the spirit. But I knew, I knew for sure, deep down inside me, I had done what I needed to do. Now, for those of you who are football fans, you may get the, or you probably will get this analogy. If, if you're not a NFL, National Football League, American football uh, fan, uh, it may not make sense to you. But there was a running back. His name was and is Barry Sanders. And Barry Sanders was a gentleman who, when he would um, score a touchdown, he didn't go through all the shenanigans like you see a lot of times nowadays where they, you know, spike the ball and they, you know, have all sorts of celebrations and dances and all that sort of stuff. Barry Sanders, what he would do is he would take that ball and he would either hand it back to the referee or he would just lay it down in the end zone and he would go over to the sideline and just be calm, cool, and collective. Now, a reporter asked him one day, I heard them interviewing him, and they said to him, what is it that you are thinking about after you score a touchdown? Why don't you do the same celebration like everybody else does? And he said that he knew that he had done his job, and he was relieved. And that's what I felt like when I got through the fifth step. I felt like I had done my job. I was doing the next right thing and I was moving in the right direction. All right. So that 
is my experience, some of my experience with the fifth step. I would love to hear what your experience is with the fifth step. Uh, write me something at john, J-O-H-N, at soberspeak.com, or you could post something in our uh, uh, secret Facebook group if you want, uh, or you can reach out to me at uh, on Instagram, uh, and that is at soberspeak. And so, you know, I just want to tell you once again, I sit down in front of this mic and I think, am I going to mislead somebody? You know, I, I, I have fear. I mean, there's a lot of people listening to this, right? I have fear about misleading people and going in the wrong direction. But once again, I just sit down, I hit that record button. It's not always pretty. Uh, sometimes it's a little bit messy. It's just like recovery right? The important part is to go ahead and do it, right? If I make a mistake, I make a mistake and I'll own up to it eventually, you know, uh, or maybe <laughs> immediately, promptly, I should say. But I love you guys to death. I sure hope you enjoy Ricky R and we'll be back. Uh, oh, I will be on the back end of this with some listener feedback. Thank you now. So today, folks, we are sitting here with Mr. Ricky R. Can you go ahead and say hello to the Sober Speak audience? Hello there. Thank you, Ricky. All right, Ricky, why don't you start out by giving your sobriety date and your home group, if you would like to, please. My sobriety date is August 20th, 1990, and my home group is the Jacksonville Fellowship Recovery Group in Jacksonville, Texas. Now, Jacksonville, Texas, where is, I know where Jacksonville, Florida is, but where is Jacksonville, Texas? It's 30 miles south of Tyler, Texas. Okay. And you know, I would never have guessed that with your northeastern accent yeah, that you right. have there. <laughs> well, you could tell you're not from Boston, right? That's correct. So uh, I met Ricky through one of the other speakers who has been on this podcast before, one of our fan favorites, I guess is what you would call it. His name is uh, Gary Kay. Uh, that's the episode entitled, There is a Solution. So Ricky and Gary know each other. I believe that Mr. Gary is your sponsor. Is that correct? Yes, that's correct. How long has he been your sponsor now? For the last 15 to 18 years, I'm not sure exactly when that started. Gotcha. Well, super. Well, I'm glad you're here with us today. All right. So let's just go ahead and get this party started, if you will. Um, how did you end up getting here, Mr. Ricky? I mean, there must be some sort of background. You're sitting here on Sober Speak today. You have some sort of uh, experience, like a lot of experience, actually, with Alcoholics Anonymous. So I guess take me back to the beginning. You know, where, where, where'd you grow up? In Jacksonville? I grew up kind of all over. My dad was also an alcoholic, and he sought greener pastures or geographical cures or was running to something or from something. And so we, you know, we lived all over Alaska, Arkansas, all over Texas, Louisiana, but for the last 40 years anyway, uh, it's been right there in Jacksonville. Gotcha. And, uh, I took my first drink in Grand Isle, Louisiana. Louisiana. So you said your dad was an alcoholic mm -hmm. as well. What kind of alcoholic was he? I guess? He was just like me. When he t took a drink, he couldn't stop. And he knew that people wanted to see him, so he drove and drank a lot. <clears throat> to the point that he went to TDC three times. 
And TDC, for those not familiar with it, the Texas Department of Corrections, correct? Correct. And he was drunk when he got home uh, the last time he went. Did he ever find recovery? No. He he went to AA. And, you know, I've talked to some of the older members that knew him. And he made the meetings, but he never did what we do to stay sober, which is work the 12 steps. And he died 51 years old. Oh, my goodness. Brothers, sisters, mom? I have... A mom that's 83 years old, doing well. I've got uh, two sisters, one that's doing well, and one that uh, from time to time does well when she's not on a spree. So you definitely have some family history of alcoholism there. And uh, my guess is, well, in fact, I won't guess. Was there anything even back farther in the family tree that you know of? You know, I just found out the other day that I had a great uncle that was drunk and ran over a kid and killed him when they got off the school bus back in the early 50s. And, of course, you know, back then they didn't lock you up or issue a citation or anything. It was just an accident. And uh, uh, apparently that was a family secret because I'm 60 years old and I just found out about five years ago about that. But there was, yeah, there was some history uh, there. But, uh, you know, and I, I was determined I would not drink. And after I saw what it did to my, you know, in my family, but you know, the day came where I had to see what it would do. That was in Louisiana. How old were you? I was 14. So what was it you drank? Would you say? Boone's farm, strawberry hill wine. (laughs) (laughs) I drank with a a 16 year old. that was a bigger guy than me. I I had that phenomenon of craving from the, from the get go. Uh, I drank the whole bottle. He didn't drink maybe half of his, and but I remember it. It made me feel normal and like everything was perfect in my world when I took that first drink. So, did you have any sort of inkling that you weren't doing the right thing at that time, considering your dad's uh, demise and you know what you knew of alcoholism? I really didn't because. When he drank, I saw what happened to him. When I drank, that didn't happen to me. And what was it? What what do you mean by it? Well, he was violent and, you know, he would drink until he just passed out and fell off the bar stool in the house we lived in. You know, the first time I drank, it it didn't do that to me. It made life, life seem wonderful for me. And it looked like it was horrible for him when he drank. So for a long time, I thought I was different than him. Until, you know, it progressed uh, and I started seeing how much I was like him. Okay, so you're going along this path. You uh, are 14. You had your Boone's Hill country. What's that called again? Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. That's right. Boone's Farm, Strawberry Hill. I do remember that. Um, You have the sensation. You have the phenomenon of craving from the beginning. Um, How much longer was it till you were able to drink again? Was it immediate? You know, I don't remember, but I didn't realize this. And I've been sober almost 29 years. I I never thought about this till a few months ago, but up until I took the first drink, I was a good student. Uh, I tried to make good grades. Uh, I played baseball, basketball, football. Uh, I was with what you'd call the in crowd, you know. Uh, I was in church activities and that sort of stuff. And looking back, when I took the first drink, 
all of that was over with. I never played any sports again. Didn't care if I had good grades or not. We moved to Jacksonville when I was almost 15. Immediately, the the people I gravitated toward were the guys hanging out by the curb smoking cigarettes instead of the, the in crowd or whatever. And the first time I got to use the car, I didn't go to the skating rink or the bowling alley. I went to a keg party and wrecked the family car that night. Oh, no. Actually rear-ended a preacher's daughter. Oh, no. (laughs) So, And that's kind of how my life went all the way up until I got to Alcoholics Anonymous. All right, so that's 16. And you got to Alcoholics Anonymous at uh, what age? What was 1990? I was 31. You're 31. So we have a long stretch between 16 and 31. Uh, Can you go back and look at certain points that uh, uh, earmarked, if you will, the progression of the illness in your life? Sure. When I was around 21, 22 years old, I was working in the oil field, working offshore, and there were anywhere from three to five guys we all rode together to Morgan City, Louisiana. And I had built up such a tolerance for alcohol by that point. These guys were older than me and more advanced as far as drinking goes. They always got me to drive home because I was the one that could drink as much as I wanted to and drive. Now, down the road or later in life, you know, that changed where it started taking less and less for me to get drunk. So that was a 21. Um, what about relationships in this time? Did you, did you meet any hostages? Uh, what, I mean, I met a girl and, and we got married when I was 22 and we should have never gotten married. She was a cowgirl. I was not a cowboy, but we got married and had two children. You know, it was horrible. Uh, I blamed her. She blamed me, but I, I can't look at her part. You know, all I tell, I tell my grown children this is that all I can tell you is I was a much worse husband than she was a wife. We were married three years and eight months and divorced. And then I remarried with the intentions of being a better husband. But these character defects that I've learned about in Alcoholics Anonymous did not stop because I got a divorce. Right. They were still going and growing. And uh, so that marriage, a miracle happened in Alcoholics Anonymous. They kept that together because uh, that was going downhill fast also. But we've been married 33 years now. All right, so let's talk about the turning point with that then. I mean, I know this is getting a little bit ahead, but uh, so you've been married for 33 years. First of all, did she bring any children into the marriage? Or no. Okay. Uh, were your kids living with you or were they living with their mom? They were living with their mom. Okay. So you're kind of uh, starting fresh, so to speak. You think that these character defects are going to disappear with a fresh start, but there you are, and they raise their ugly heads sometime after you get married, correct? That's correct, yes. Okay. And how many years did uh, your second wife have to put up with uh, some of your shenanigans with the drinking? We were married four and a half years when I... Got an alcoholic's nom. Does she know you were alcoholic on the front end? Uh, not on the front end. Uh, I don't think. Uh, I mean, I didn't have a good reputation. <laughs> she was young, 18 years old. Small town. Everybody knows everything. Mm. You know, and I know her parents were concerned, and I would have been too 
if my 18 year old daughter was going to marry this guy that's got this reputation, he's divorced with two kids and that was their only child that was going off to marry someone. And you would be what, 25 or so at this time? Is that right? I was 26, I believe when we got married. So you're 26, she's 18. You got a little bit of a reputation, but y'all are in love. How long did you date? Just curious. We dated probably a year and a half. Okay. So was she 17 when you actually started dating her then? No, she was 18 when we started dating. Started dating yeah. at 18. So She was 19 when we married, I believe. Gotcha. All right. So here you are, uh, starting with a mm, less than stellar uh, situation, you would think, right? Uh, the the odds aren't good, we'll put it that way, right. when you're starting like this. Right. So she she didn't know, but she, she knew you had a reputation, but she wasn't real sure you're an alcoholic, it sounds like. Well, and she was a typical pre-Alanon that, you know, thought she could fix whatever was wrong with me also. That's right. <laughs> and, uh, and she tried for a long time. Mm-hmm. For and four and a half years, at least. She even went to Al-Anon for a short period of time. During that four and a half years? Yes. Uh-huh. Okay. Uh, so what started the... What what prompted you coming into Alcoholics Anonymous? Were you aware of it? How did you find out about it? How did you make that leap? Well, in 1987, I had landed a job that I dreamed of in... I was in Memphis, Tennessee, doing some sales work, and I went to jail and was in jail for eight days before I got out. What were you in jail for? DWI. Gotcha. And back in 1987, it was a little harder to get a DWI than it is nowadays, so you must have been trying very hard? Well, my vehicle was pointed the wrong direction on a three-lane, one-way avenue. That'll do it. That'll do it, Ricky. sure would. I got home and... You know, I lost my job, and my wife was about ready to leave, and she convinced me to go to Alcoholics Anonymous. So I went to two AA meetings. I saw the steps, and there was a couple of them that I was not going to do. Which ones were those? That was step five and step nine. Gotcha. (laughs) And for the listening audience who may not know what those are, uh, step five is admitted to God, to ourselves, and to another human being, the exact nature of our wrongs. That means you're going to sit down with somebody and kind of go through your uh, inventory. Right. So you knew you weren't going to do that one. And then step nine is made direct amends <laughs> to such people wherever possible, except when to do so would injure them or others. So you weren't going to go make amends to anybody out there in the land, right? Right, yeah. <laughs> So, and then I saw also that the answer is God. So I, I tell this all the time, you know, if, if you have a problem and you know, the, the only answer is God, you could go to Walmart at 7am and stand outside the door, like someone in the Salvation Army and ring a bell and ask for 12 hours, stand there and ask every person that comes out, tell them, say, I have a problem only God can solve. Where should I go? And see how many of them tell you to go to AA. (laughs) They'll all tell you to go to church. And I knew that. I went to church. And I tried to do everything that, that, you know, they said to do. I read the Bible from cover to cover, prayed 20 times a day. But I still felt uneasy in church, out of church. And finally the day came, uh, 
it was like Fred in the big book. It was the end of a perfect day, not a cloud on the horizon. And I took a drink, ended up drinking all the beer a friend of mine had. He had 11 beers. And I went home, and I, my thinking was at the time that, and I made, I made it a little over a year, 13 months. And my thinking was that surely after this length of time, it's all purged and flushed out of my system. And if I ever started again, it would be like when I was 14 and I'll be real vigilant and not let it get out of, you know, control. So I drank that night and my wife was out of town and, but I drove straight home and never crossed the stripe or went off in the ditch, woke up the next morning, no hangover, remembered everything I did. And I was excited. And if we would have had cell phones, I would have called my wife and given her the great news, but (laughs) I had to wait until she got home, and she wasn't near as excited about it as I was. <laughs> and so that's when I started on my controlled drinking, and uh, and I thought I did pretty good. I didn't go to jail for three months, <laughs> but I went. And uh, something to be proud of. I didn't go to jail for three months. Right. Only an alcoholic, right, would look at it like that. Right. <laughs> that was in April of nineteen ninety. That was the last time I went to jail. My wife had uh, left me in around July of 1990. And uh, I woke up one morning, and my dad had died two years prior. My mother had divorced him because he was a sorry, no-good alcoholic. Mm-hmm. And just out of curiosity, during this time, I know you didn't think about your dad when you were 14, right? Right. But as you were... In your cups, as they say, during these last days, were you thinking, oh, no, I'm becoming what my father was? Oh, yeah. Yeah. I kind of, you know, I guess did a little mini inventory and it was like parallel with, you know, just how he was and and the things that were actually uh, I was advancing a little faster than he did at his age. Did that uh, scare you? Yeah, but, you know, I still, uh, like, you know, like Bill says in his story, I, I, it's one of the funniest things in the book where he says he would need a six-pack and a tumbler of gin to eat breakfast. And then he says, but I still thought I could control the situation. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, you know and, and that was me. I, you know, somehow, some way, I would control and enjoy my drinking. Mm-hmm. I didn't realize I'd never been able to do both of those. If I controlled it, I wasn't enjoying it. If I was enjoying it, I certainly wasn't controlling it. Anyway, my mother had divorced my dad and married another alcoholic in two months. Oh, wow. Did she have any inkling that she was marrying another alcoholic when she got into it? Did you talk about that? You know, I don't know, but but he was different than, than my dad. What do you mean, different? Well, in one way, he he didn't get in the car and get on the road driving. This guy, you know, had the same job 31 years. He came home at 5 o'clock and never left. He just sat there at home and drank till he got drunk. But she went to wake him up June the 7th of 1990, and he wouldn't wake up. He had had an esophageal hemorrhage and bled to death. Oh, my goodness. So two months later, I wake up. My heart's racing. And I'm gasping for air. That was my moment of clarity. I knew if I took another drink, I was going to the cemetery. And I believe that more now than I did then. 
And, you know, people can't see you. I'm looking at you. You look like a very healthy individual. And this was almost, not quite, but almost 30 years ago, 28. Is that right? Uh Uh-huh. And it's hard to believe. It just goes to show you how alcohol can ravage a body. Right. All right. So now you're getting up to your sobriety date, August 20th of 1990. Uh, Take me through that day and maybe a little past that. When I woke up and I had that moment of clarity where I knew if I took a drink, another drink, I was going to die. I guess I was finally convinced maybe alcohol is the problem. It's not, but I thought, well, maybe they're right because alcohol was a problem to my wife. The doctor said alcohol was a problem. The preacher said alcohol was a problem. The judge said alcohol was a problem. And I believe one reason that Alcoholics Anonymous is not a hundred times bigger than it is is because the alcoholic out there drinking right now, he knows that's not the problem. And he thinks that Alcoholics Anonymous is for people that pro- their problem is alcohol. It's because they, like myself, they don't understand the difference in alcohol being the problem and someone with alcoholism. I don't have the problem of alcohol. My problem is alcoholism. Mm. Anyway, uh, I thought, well, maybe they're right. And uh, but I, I've told you know people in AA if alcohol was a problem, my seven-year-old grandson could have given me an answer. He'd say, well, Papa, if alcohol's a problem, don't drink. Just quit drinking. And so that's what I did. I just stopped drinking. And life was much, much, much worse sober than it was, you know, drinking. What do you mean by that? Just uh, the fears I had were deeper, darker, blacker uh, fears and um, just the misery and the depression and you know, 52 describes me, you know, we're having trouble with personal relationships. We can't control our emotional nature. We're prey to misery and depression. We have a feeling of uselessness. We're full of fear. We're unhappy. When I read that, I thought it was talking about the guy that was drinking. But that's the guy that is not drinking. If I pour some booze on that, it makes that kind of go away. Settles you down. Right. So that's what I had and. uh Anyway, to make a long story short, someone convinced me to try AA one more time. All right, so let's just take a little break here. We'll be continuing our conversation with Mr. Ricky in a moment, but just a reminder, you are listening to Sober Speak. You can find us on the web at SoberSpeak.com. There you will find approximately... 70 plus, maybe 80 by the time we get to this uh, episode being released. Episodes you can listen to for free. You can also find the donate button on our website, which you can use if the spirit moves you to do such. Please keep in mind this is a podcast funded by you, the listener. Sober Speak is a self-supporting organization through our own contributions. We are not allied with any sect, denomination, politics, organization, or institution. We do not wish to engage in any controversy, neither endorse nor oppose any causes. All right, now back to Mr. Ricky R. All right, so you said it gave you a chance to try it again. Take me forward from there. Well, uh, probably the best thought I've had in my entire life and I can't believe it came from me. I went to AA, and, and before I walked in, I told myself, okay, I'm going to go in there, and I'm going to do whatever they say to do. I don't care how drastic it sounds or how stupid it sounds or whatever. 
it's obvious all of my answers have not gotten me anywhere. And, you know, I always had a plan. You know, we have this, I've got this plan. If I was confronted, you know, about my drinking, I always had a plan. And we always tell the newcomer, if you have a plan, we want to hear it because we like to laugh a lot. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> but uh, I was out of plans, but I told myself, whatever they say do, I will do it. And I don't care what it is. And I'm going to give this six months. And if I can be sober and happy simultaneously, which had never happened, that'll be fantastic. But after six months, if this being sober is like it always is when I'm not drinking, they can tell me that you're going to die if you drink. Okay, I'm going to the liquor store. I'll die, but I'll get some oblivion on the way. And that was the best attitude that I could have had when I got an Alcoholics Anonymous. It took me a little while to find someone that I guess that really believed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, I had some people tell me, well, go to more meetings. I mean, that helps, but it doesn't solve what's going on inside of me. Uh, It doesn't treat my alcoholism. Okay, so let's talk about that a little bit, because there's going to be some people going, what did he just say? And I know where you're going with this, I think, right? Um, When you say people that really believed in the program of Alcoholics Anonymous, talk about that a little bit. Well, the the program, which is the only program we have in Alcoholics Anonymous, is the, the 12 steps. Going to AA meetings and not drinking is no different at all than going to the bar and not drinking. I can't go to a bar and get that buzz I see these other people have unless I do what they're doing, which is drinking alcohol. And I can't go to Alcoholics Anonymous meetings and be happy, joyous, and free like other people I see unless I do what they're doing. And uh, and the people that seem to have a successful, happy life uh, had one thing in common. You know, they had worked the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous, and their lives had been transformed to the point that a lot of them, like myself today, I'm around alcohol more now probably than when I drank. I mean, it's it's in my house. Uh, I play golf. Uh, guys I play golf with, most all of them drink. There had to be a, an interchange, and the, the meetings help. Don't get me wrong. I'm not knocking AA meetings. Uh, but there's a saying that, you know, meeting makers make it. And my sponsor, Gary, says meeting makers make meetings. And, you know, I need more than the meetings. Uh, I need that that change uh, that happens as a result of taking the 12 steps. And so you're talking about, I believe, the 12 steps as they are laid out in the big book of Alcoholics Anonymous, correct? Yes, correct. All right. So let's go through those a little bit, right? And, and what it says and what was passed to you and what I'm sure you pass on to your sponsees now. Uh, so first step, right? We admitted we were powerless over alcohol, that our lives had become unmanageable. Give me kind of a, uh, a, a thumbnail sketch of that, if you will, from the book's perspective. Okay. I'm not good at thumbnails I can, unless it's a big thumbnail. <laughs> <laughs> I wondered why it was when I, when I took a drink, you know, I tell people in AA, I accidentally got drunk a lot, which is <laughs> really true. You know, uh, I hear people in AA all the time that say, I always drank to get drunk. I don't believe that. I think they wanted what I did, which is what Dr. Silkworth says. I was restless, irritable, and discontented unless I could again experience the sense of ease and comfort that comes at once by taking a few drinks. You know, and then after I take the few drinks, it sets off that craving inside of me and my body craves more alcohol. But I wonder why is it that when I set out to have a drink or two, 
Most of the time, I don't. I always have more. And the other part that was the puzzle was after, you know, I've gone to jail or my wife's left or I've, you know, had one of these episodes, what is it about me that gets me started drinking again? And that's the mental obsession. And so my sponsor, former sponsor before Gary, he had me read. He started not on the blank page. He started on the dust cover of the third edition. And on the dust cover, it, it talked about this is the third edition, the basic text. And he had to explain to me what a textbook was, even though I pretty much knew. He said, it's not a novel that you throw up on the shelf and read it on a rainy day. You know, it's something that builds upon itself as you go through it. And he had me read the forward, the preface, the, the three forwards in the first 57 pages, which is through chapter four. And then he went over that stuff and made sure I understood it. And then we went into how it works. And, and the older I get, the simpler I want to keep Alcoholics Anonymous, the better it works. And we get to the A, Bs, and Cs, which are read at almost every A meeting there is. He said, okay, we need to see if you're convinced of this. A, that your alcoholic can't manage your own life. Yes, I'm convinced. B, that probably no human power could have relieved your alcoholism. Yes, I'm convinced. C, that God could and would if he were sought. And I said, yeah, I'm convinced. He said, okay, you've done the first two steps. And I looked at him like he was some kind of mind reader. I said, how do you know? And he said, read the next sentence. And the next sentence says, being convinced, we're at step three. But I have a different take on step one than than, than some people. Uh, when I first got an AA in 1990, I call them don't drink meetings. There were a lot of just don't drink, you know. And every now and then you'd run across a group that was all about recovery. And actually you didn't hear much about drinking or not drinking in these meetings where they talk about recovery. What I believe about step one, it does not mean that I can't drink. Step one means I'm going to drink if I don't pursue the solution. If, I, if I'm powerless over alcohol, I have no power, I'm going to drink. I guess that's enough about step one. Yeah, no, no, no. Well put. I like that. I like that a lot. <laughs> okay, then let's let's talk then a little bit about uh, step two and uh, coming to believe in a power greater than yourself. Uh, first of all, you had mentioned you had some sort of uh, background in religion or spirituality um, uh, from going to church, right? Mm -hmm. So when you came in to Alcoholics Anonymous, were you... Uh, fighting against that belief or was it something you kind of grasped onto what was your experience there no i didn't have a problem with it at all but i did not have any idea how screwed up in that area i was what do you mean by uh, that just some old ideas that that i was taught that over time you know my, my mind has changed on, on a lot of that stuff you know uh and something that, you know, I would read the step and have my own interpretation of it. I thought it said came to believe in something. And step two doesn't say that. It says came to believe came to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. Hmm, good point. I've and never the best, thought of that. The best way I know to do that is put my butt in a seat in Alcoholics Anonymous. And and I'm sitting there day after day and listening to you guys share based on what you share. I come to believe that a power greater than myself could restore me to sanity. 
step two became a little easier. But that that's still transforming, you know. So let's talk about that term sanity a little bit. In other words, um, you know, you hear people in AA, uh, there's kind of a, a discussion about whether it's insanity in terms of alcohol, whether it's, uh, you know, just insane thinking. Give me your, your take and what you gather from the book in regards to sanity and being restored to sanity. Well, what, what the big book is talking about, it's not talking about uh, the stupid, crazy things I do when I drink. You can pour enough alcohol down a non-alcoholic and they're going to do some stupid crazy things also and people might say well that's insane but that's not what we're talking about in Alcoholics Anonymous the insane thinking that that the big book is talking about is when I'm stone cold sober my thinking that convinces me that I can take a drink that's what I have to be restored to I've got to be restored to where that doesn't come up anymore that thinking that this time it'll be different. And my understanding is that it doesn't happen until I get through the first nine steps, because in step 10, it says, for by this time, sanity will have returned. Here's what I'm thinking, is that we're going to have to bring you back another time, (laughs) Okay. okay? Because we just got through the second step, And I am really enjoying this uh, conversation. Uh, I want to continue it, right? And when I bring you back next time, I think we're going to go through the rest of the steps and let you wrap it up in any sort of way that you want to, okay? Does that sound like a good idea? Sure. Okay, I hate that you have to come back in some other time, but we'll make it all work out, all right? All right. Thank you so much, Ricky. Let me go ahead and read a little bit out of the the big book here before we uh, close this up. And this is page 164 from the big book. And it says, abandon yourself to God as you understand God. Admit your faults to him and to your fellows. Clear away the wreckage of your past. Give freely of what you find and join us. We shall be with you in the fellowship of the spirit. And you will surely meet some of us, like me and Mr. Ricky, as you trudge the road of happy destiny. May God bless you and keep you until then. Once again, Ricky, thanks for popping by. Thank you. Well, if you have any comments for Mr. Ricky and you want to send those my way to John, J-O-H-N, at SoberSpeak.com, feel free to send those to me and I will make sure that Ricky receives them. And uh, as mentioned at the end of that episode, we are going to be sure to have Ricky back for another episode very, very soon. So now on to a little bit of uh, listener feedback. Uh, Megan writes in and Megan says, this is Megan, an alcoholic addict from Australia. And I am a very grateful member of Narcotics Anonymous. I'm 24 and I've been clean and sober for about 21 months. I just wanted to thank you so much for your very amazing podcast. My sponsor put me on to it, and I just wanted to let you know that today I listened to episode 67 with David G on step four, and I, ha- I have come home tonight and begun my own step four. Oh, that's fantastic, Megan. This may sound like nothing to you Uh, But to me, it's a pretty big deal. Well, it sounds like a big deal to me as well, Ms. Megan. Step 
four was the whole reason I didn't want to do the steps. I was terrified of not having to, of having to be honest with myself, but another human as well. Thanks to my sponsor, I've been coming around to the idea of it, and she told me I should pray when it starts to feel right. I should just begin. After listening to our com- after listening to your conversation with David G in step four, it felt right. Oh wow, that's fantastic, Megan. And I'm actually even excited to begin, exclamation point. Imagine that, exclamation point. Thank you both so, so much for your service. I and many other people all around the world are very grateful for the work that you do. Keep calm and spread the message. Big uh, peace sign. Uh, (laughs) I've never heard that before. Keep calm and spread the message. Well, I want to tell you this, Ms. Megan. I sent your uh, the text of your conversation over to Mr. David, and he said that it gave him chills. Uh, it's something that neither him or I ever grow tired of hearing, and that is we both hope, and I know I can speak for David here, that by sharing this message in our experience, strength, and hope, that it can prompt someone to do the work on their own and enable them to have their own experience with the 12 steps of Alcoholics Anonymous. All right. Michael writes in on Instagram. He says, hello, I've been listening for about eight months. You are my meeting between meetings. When I travel internationally, your guests experience strength and hope give me solace. When I can't find a local meeting, I take what I want and I leave the rest at the curb for the trash man to pick up. Well, thank you for writing in, Michael, and I'm so glad we can be part of your journey. Cassandra writes in, uh, in commenting about the previous episode that we just had with Jerry J entitled Texas lawyer finds a way out. And she says, wow, what an episode, John. I'm not through it completely yet, but it's full of that old timer, old school wisdom. This reminds me so much of what I used to hear growing up in the rooms when I sat with my father at his meetings. Just incredible. And I happen to know that Miss Cassandra is an Al-Anon. By the way, I just want to put another little shout out here. Cassandra is the one, if you happen to be following me on Instagram, she is the one who creates all those posts. I don't do anything out there. And then I'm able to take it and share her work in the Facebook groups that we're a part of. And uh, um, I'm just so thankful uh, that she is able to do that. Uh, And uh, anyway, they're they're just incredible. It helps us to get the message out there is basically what it helps us to do. All right. So speaking of Facebook, I picked out a few comments from our Facebook group. And my only concern is when I start picking out a few comments is that I'm going to leave someone out or I'm going to forget someone. But, you know, here it is. I'm just going to pick out a few comments from the Facebook group. And Patty posted a comment in Facebook. And she says, I am 95 days sober, but today is the first day that everyone seems to be pushing all my buttons hard. And uh, she got uh, tons of comments on that. Once again, I just picked out a few here, but Lisa commented, 
um, to Patty, and she says, um, pray for peace and recenter yourself. Take deep breaths, and most of all, call your sponsor. Maria commented, and she said, life on life's terms, my friend, and acceptance is the answer to all my problems today. When I am disturbed, it is because I find someone, some place, or thing, or situation, some fact of life unacceptable to me, and I can find no serenity until I accept that person, place, thing, or situation as being exactly the way it is supposed to be at this moment. Nothing, absolutely nothing, happens in God's world by mistake. And if you're not familiar with what Maria was uh, uh, quoting there, it is from Dr. Paul's um, story in the back of the big book. Um, In one version, the third edition, the one that I usually read out of, it's called Dr. Alcoholic addict. And I believe in the fourth edition now it is called acceptance is the answer to all my problems. But nonetheless, thank you for those comments, Maria. Angela commented to Patty and she said, um, meeting, pray, Ask God to remove resentments and call your sponsor on the way to a meeting to look for a newcomer you can help. There you go. So Angela put it all in there. Basically, go to meetings, pray, ask God to remove the resentments, call your sponsor, go to a meeting again, and look for a newcomer you can help. And you know, that is in essence what Angela is quoting there, the 10th step and what it says to do when things like this resentments crop up. So thank you for those comments, Angela. Jackie commented and Jackie said, do jumping jacks. It diffuses the immediate feelings of rage, and then do what everyone else says. So there you go. Jackie got into some exercise, and that's a very good way to put it. Uh, Lisa added on to Jackie's comments about the jumping jacks, and she said, a bonus point, if you do the jumping jacks in front of the button pushers. Laughter always helps, she says. So I thought that was funny. Wanted to read that. All right. And then eventually, after all the comments Patty was able to read through, she said, Thanks, everybody. Triple exclamation point. I made it through with a strong arm in there, a little symbol, whatever you call that. Uh, What do you call those? Uh, Emoticons or emojis? I don't know. Anyway. I am kind of new to the uh, uh, Facebook world. All right, so Ginger posts and she says, I am 10 years clean and sober today. What a strange trip it has been. And she got all kinds of comments, congratulatory comments regarding that. But Ginger, thank goodness you are sober 10 years today. Uh, God bless you. Uh, That is just fantastic. Uh, Fabian posts in and he says, receive my 90 day chip today. 90 days. Thank you, John M. for your podcast. Well, Fabian, I'm so thankful that we can be a small part of your journey. 
All right, everybody, that finishes up the uh, feedback for this week. Uh, God bless you all once again. Thank you for tuning in. And we will most likely see you next week. You know, I realize every time I say see you next week, I do this thing one one week at a time. Now, it's been like... uh, what, almost 80 episodes in a row now? I don't even know what the number of this one is, but um, (laughs) I keep doing it. But every once in a while I go, okay, maybe next week I'm going to take off. But this, but so far, I just keep punching them out because I think of you guys and I want to be with you and I want to be in community with you guys. Uh, uh, It is definitely a labor of love. Uh, I don't consider it a chore at all. Nonetheless, uh, God bless. Uh, Thanks for coming in and uh, listening to our shares today. And hope to see you next week if I'm here again, or if you're here again, or if we're both here again. Adios.